This is KAOS. You and I are listening to Chaos in Australia. Let's go to the telephones now and take a request. Yes, Billy. You hear radio waves in your head. Ah, is there a request that you have tonight for chaos? Radio waves. Brendan O'Brien, and welcome to the Astrophys Podcast. The title of today's podcast is Heliophysics with Dave the Grave Hunter. Each session we'll have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest from both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy, we'll have a news roundup, have a history and theory session from Nadezhda, and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Let's begin by calling in Professor Nadezhda Cherbakov. Nadezhda, can you tell us what you're going to talk about this week in our radio astronomy history and theory session? Hello, Brendan. It's very nice here in Tver. We are having thunderstorms and 27 degrees. I just looked on your radar and you are having a very cold 14 degrees and some rain. So we're both getting rain, but very different temperatures. It might end up being quite nice here once the storms are finished. Anyway, today... I am going to talk about the icon of radio astronomy, and that is Karl Gothjansky. Thank you very much, Nadezhda. We'll look forward to it. We'll cross back to you a little bit later. For our first Astrophys interview, today we're talking with Dave Hunter, and he's known as the Grave Hunter, and I'm sure there's a story in there we'll hear. But first, David, could you tell us your background? What started your interest in science, in physics, in heliophysics? Tell us a bit about your journey. 
Hello, Brendan. Thanks for having me on your show. I originally started out as an archaeologist, and the state of commercial archaeology in Victoria is a bit dull. You tend to spend weeks out in the middle of a, of a paddock digging and finding nothing. It's very rare when you actually find something that's interesting in, in terms of commercial archaeology, or interesting to me anyway. got interested in uh, the use of geophysics, using methods to try and find what's under the ground before we even dig, in order to try and save that time that I was spending excavating and finding nothing. As it turns out, this, is, of course, isn't a very good business idea because the archaeologists actually want to have their own jobs, which is fair enough. Um, so that didn't quite pan out as I was hoping. But I was lucky enough to do some work with uh, geophysics in a cemetery. They were looking for, well, they, they knew that they had records of some 30-odd burials, and there were only two headstones in this particular area. And so they asked me to come in and use ground penetrating radar we were able to, to map all of these remaining graves that were lost without any excavation work at all. And so that sort of led me down that path and eventually I became known as Dave the Grave Hunter <laughs> because, of, of course, I, I um, can now find graves. That's now my main business. However, the equipment that I use, ground penetrating radar and some other times I use magnetometers and other equipment. We're going to talk a bit about your equipment soon. There's a nice linkage there, actually, David, because two weeks ago in a previous podcast, we spoke to a person that was building radio telescopes, and he said that most of their work involves digging holes. And we're also going to cover a story where at Storwall, Swinburne University is studying the universe by going down mine shafts and detecting cosmic rays and different particles that travel down through mine shafts. So digging holes and finding out what's underneath the ground can actually reveal a lot about what's happening above the ground or what's happening in space or indeed further in the universe. And you mentioned before that you're using both radar and magnetometers. I'd like to get a bit of information about both of those devices and the physics involved in them. What would you like to start with, David? So ground penetrating radar, the idea is you're sending radio waves into the ground and the radio waves will be either reflected or refracted off different layering in the soil depending on the relative dielectric permittivity. So the ability of the soil to either be electrically conductive or magnetically susceptible. Yep. So if you have a particularly susceptible or conductive soil layer, you'll get a particularly strong reflection of this of radar signal. And that, that then travels back up to the, the equipment on the ground um, and we record the time taken for the signal to go down and back up to the, the ground surface. And based on that, we can then estimate the velocity of the, of the signal and from that we can calculate the depth to that particular layer of soil. So using that method, we can then create a cross-sectional view of the soil layers. You can then build up a three-dimensional picture as to what exactly is, is under the ground. That's fantastic, David. Last week we spoke about Guglielmo Marconi and we found out that he was generating radio waves that could travel through the air easily. Do you have to use really high-powered radio waves to punch them into the ground to get a radar return? Surprisingly, not. There are regulations as to what exact energy levels that are being put into the antennas. We can run this system all day on a small 12-volt battery. Awesome. What's so special about these radio waves that they can actually penetrate the Earth? Does that mean that when we tune in our radio and listen, some of those waves are actually penetrating the Earth or using a special frequency? 
The actual penetrative ability depends on primarily the material that it's traveling through and the frequency in the wavelength. What's important the most is the ability of the substance to conduct electricity. If it can do that, then it will essentially take away the electric component of the electromagnetic signal that we're sending into the ground or into the wall or out into the sky, be it uh, ground penetrating radar or if it's radio waves that you listen to through car radio or that sort of thing. Okay, very good. So what wavelength or frequency does your ground-penetrating radar use? So it transmits at a range of frequencies, but the peak is at 250 megahertz. So the majority of the energy is at 250 megahertz. It proceeds, on a, again, on a range of frequencies, usually between 70 megahertz all the way up to about a gigahertz. And we can actually filter those frequencies in the software. The higher the frequency, the higher the resolution getting uh, reflections off small and thinner layers of soil or thinner buried objects. So if you want to image, say, horizontal timbers that might have been buried in the ground, yes, metal reinforcing bars in concrete, you would use a high frequency antenna. The reason for that is that you get the higher resolution and therefore you can see smaller things. And in this case, rebar might only be, say, a centimetre or two in diameter. Uh, the problem with the higher frequencies is that you don't actually get the penetration depth. So your higher frequency antenna, like a 2 gigahertz antenna, which is used for concrete scanning uh, to find re reinforcing bars, that sort of thing, they might only be able to see down perhaps 30 centimetres into the concrete. Whereas the 250 megahertz signal that I'm using in most soils can see down at three metres. The trade-off is that you don't have the high resolution. So you can only see things that might be, say, 20 to 30 centimetres thick. So in this case, what we're looking for with grains are simply just the natural layering that's around. And then suddenly there's a, a gap in that layering where a hole has been dug and then backfilled. And so you, you don't have that, that continuation of that natural layering in the soil. And that's what we're picking up with the radar in order to find out the unmarked grapes. We're not necessarily detecting the graves or the, 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 uh, the skeletons or the coffins themselves. Fantastic. Some great uses of radio waves there. Now, let's move on, David. And can you tell us about magnetometers? What is a magnetometer? Yeah, sure. So a magnetometer is just a device that will detect the amplitude of the a local magnetic field, usually in three axes, so up, down, left, right, and backwards and forwards, X, Y, and Z dimensions. In the case of archaeology, we're looking for things that uh, usually have a ferromagnetic signature, so buried objects that might have iron in them, so nails, building materials, that sort of thing. You can, in theory, uh, it has been done a few times, you can actually detect the decomposing remains of even grave sites using magnetometry. The way it's done is the microbes that are eating away at the wooden remains of your buildings or your coffin or, or the, the remains themselves secrete iron. And so what's left behind once these microbes all, all leave because they've, they've eaten through whatever substance is completely decomposed, you end up with this, this patch of soil with slightly more iron in it than the surrounding soil. And so some magnetometers, which are particularly sensitive, can pick up that signal into the aurora side of things. The aurora is particles from the sun that are colliding with the Earth's atmosphere. So you're ending up with disturbances in the local magnetic field or in, in the areas surrounding the north and south magnetic pole of the Earth. And so we can detect the disturbance caused by the aurora using ground-based magnetometers. Fantastic. Now, where does the Earth get its magnetic field from? How does it generate a magnetic field in the first place? 
the Earth has got the solid inner core, and then there's a, a liquid outer core, which is made primarily out of iron and nickel. So it's the iron content in that liquid form, that liquid core, outer core, I should say. Because it's a liquid, it's moving around, and so, of course, you've got your listeners would probably be familiar with Michael Faraday's law of electromagnetic induction, where you've got a moving electrical conductor within a magnetic field, you then create another electric uh, eddy current, which then creates its own electromagnetic field around it. So in this case, what we have is the Earth, an electrical conductor, moving through the Sun's magnetic field, and it's that process which creates the Earth's magnetic field. Fantastic. Tell us about your work with auroras. I can see now that there's a relationship between the Earth's magnetic field and the particles travelling from the Sun, the relationship between the Earth and the Sun, fields. Could you tell us about your work training people about auroras? Yeah, sure. So how I actually ended up or interested in the auroras is that the, the radar that I use, well, a radar system has basically got a electrical, a, a radio antenna and a radio, uh, sorry, a radio receiver and a radio transmitter. Now, the receiver itself is basically just a main automata. So there's, that, there's a use of a main automata there. And then there's the separate use of magnetometry to find decomposing timbers or decomposing organic material. So for those both of those reasons, I do use magnetometers. How the how space weather or how, how auroras can affect the equipment that I'm using to find buried objects was of particular interest because sometimes I might go out into the field and collect some data and all of a sudden there's a spike in the, in the readings that I can't explain. Uh, and it turns out that space weather, things like solar flares and aurora activity, were actually interfering with, with the data that I collect. So I uh, think thankfully nowadays um, the equipment is being developed and, and there are shielding techniques that are available so I don't have to worry about them as much. That's how I got into learning about space weather forecasting. In 2012 I was invited to speak at the Aurora Australis Festival in Hobart which was exciting. I've never been to Tasmania before so that was that was a fun trip. <laughs> And I sort of started thinking to myself, well, it seems that there's a lot of people out there. There's um, there, there are quite a few Facebook groups, all, all of people in Australia that are hunting the aurora in order to try and photograph them or see it with their own eyes. And they, these are people not just in Tasmania. These are people in Victoria, New South Wales. There was a photograph taken of the aurora a few years ago from Uluru. Wow. So, yeah, that was a particularly strong a strong storm, that one. And the South Islanders at New Zealand also have some beautiful views sometimes. Yes, they definitely do, yeah. Tasmania in particular is uniquely located because it's actually closer, or it's the closest landmass, the closest populated, I should say, landmass <laughs> to the South Magnetic Pole. So uh, it's, there's quite a few groups of people there. So I thought, well, they're all going out on, on nights hoping to find the aurora and not necessarily seeing anything because a lot of the forecasts that are being done are being done for protecting satellites and spacecraft. So they're being overly cautious just in case there's a magnetic storm that might be stronger than what they had forecasted. Okay, that's normal procedure, is it, to shut down your satellite when there's a storm arriving? Yes, it does interfere with normal operations. On the International Space Station, can't go out on spacewalks, for instance, if, if one was planned. Uh, they wouldn't go outside uh, if there is a, a any storming going on. Yeah, there are some effects that, um, that need to be considered, and uh, particularly for commercial satellites where you, know, you might spend several hundred million dollars to develop a satellite, and then a lot of these companies would obviously prefer to bear on the side of caution rather than, than not, which certainly makes sense. The people that are looking at these forecasts specifically in order to find the aurora are thinking, oh, great, there's a nice strong storm on. I'll go outside and, and look. 
And inevitably, nine out of ten times, these forecasts are a bit optimistic. And as such, people were thinking, well, why didn't we see the aurora? This science must not be completely accurate. And that's not necessarily the case. It's just that the forecasts that are put out are being overly cautious. So I thought to myself, well, I can fill, fill this role and uh, teach people how to do this. And so that's, that's what I'm certainly planning on doing. Uh, starting next month, I'll, I'll be running uh, workshops. First one will be in Melbourne. And then hopefully from there, a few more throughout Victoria. And then we'll just see how we Go. People who do your workshops, David, what will they come away with? What will they have learnt in doing your course? We'll go through things like the basics of solar imagery, interpreting solar data. So, for instance, X-ray flux data, looking at coronal holes, looking at the solar flares, active regions, that sort of thing. And then all the way through to how that influences Earth's magnetic field. So, looking at things like the ACE and discovers spacecraft uh, sweep hand data. A measure, which gives us me- measurements of the Earth's or the near-Earth magnetic fields as well as the solar wind density and speed in order to be able to try and determine, based on the levels that these spacecraft uh, detect, what's the likelihood of, of an aurora being visible at a particular location throughout Australia or New Zealand. So that, that's the primary goal of, of the workshops. That's fantastic, David. So what you're doing, in effect, is you're generating stronger science literacy among our population and encouraging people to be involved in citizen science projects. I think the world will always be a better place when people can use science to make decisions rather than superstition. Exactly, yes. And that's certainly something that I am very much in favour of, yeah, yeah. Okay, now, David, just before we finish off, we'd like to encourage more people to become citizen scientists and understand more about the world, the planet, our solar system, the universe we live in. You're running some Aurora workshops. Can you tell us where people can find out about those Aurora workshops? Yes, they can go to my website, which is www.auroraaustralis.space. Auroraaustralis.space. Thank you very much, David. I'll go and have a look at that myself. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us, David. It's been terrific. Thank you very much, Brendan. It was good to talk to you, and thank you to all your listeners. So, Aurora Hunters, to find out if auroras are going to occur at your location and how to interpret satellite data accurately and effectively, go to Dave's website. It's at tinyearl.com forward slash Aurora Dave, all lowercase, all one word. And now we cross back to Tver in Russia to talk to Dr. Sherbakov. And today in our history and theory session, she's going to tell us about Karl Yansky. Welcome back, Nadezhda. Thank you, Brendan. Today we talk about Karl Guth Yansky. He was born in Oklahoma in 1905, where his father was dean of the College of Engineering at the University of Oklahoma. Then the family moved to Wisconsin, where Father Jansky became a member of the faculty of the University of Wisconsin. Here, Karl Jansky went to school and went on to university and received his Bachelor of Science degree in physics in 1927 at the age of 22. He graduated with honours and went on to do his master's degree in physics. He was quite a sportsman, an excellent tennis player and an outstanding ice hockey player for the university team. 
He applied for a position with Bell Telephone Laboratories in 1928 and was posted to their field station in New Jersey, and he was given the task of studying the factors affecting the operation of the Bell Transoceanic Radio Telephone Systems. This project had a very practical objective, and that was the improvement in the radio telephone service. Specifically, he had to study static and interference noises. While some of his work was done on long wavelengths, around 4,000 meters, of particular concern to radio astronomy are his studies on 14.6 meters at 20.5 megahertz. So, in March 1929, Jansky began the design of a rotatable directional antenna system and the receiving of apparatus to go with it. And the construction of the antenna began five months later, and meanwhile he was still working on the study of static at long wavelengths. His antenna locally was called Jansky's merry-go-round, and it had a diameter of approximately 100 feet and was 20 foot tall. But by rotating the antenna on a set of four tires from a T-model Ford, the direction of the signal could be pinpointed. A small shed to the side of the antenna housed a pen and paper recording system. Next came a long period of time devoted to the laborious data collection, one of the great characteristics of great science, and he was recording the intensity of the static received at 14.6 meters as a function of two variables, time and direction. Karl Jansky's work demonstrates how essential is the accumulation of accurate data. In a paper entitled Directional Studies of Atmospherics at High Frequencies, he presented in April 1932 a description of his equipment and classified the three types of static he was receiving on 14.6 meters. He classified them into three distinct groups. The first group, static from local thunderstorms. Second, static from thunderstorms a long way away. Then he stated the third group was composed of very steady his static. The origin of which is not yet known. Then, after another year of painstaking data collection using his antenna, he noticed that the location of maximum intensity rose and fell once a day, leading Yangsky to initially think that he was detecting radiation from the sun. After a few months of following this signal, however, the brightest spot moved away from the position of the sun. So Yansky determined that the signal repeated on a cycle of 23 hours and 56 minutes, the period of the Earth's rotation relative to the stars, which is what we call a sidereal day. By comparing his observations with optical astronomical maps, Yansky concluded that the radiation was coming not from the Sun, but from the Milky Way, and was strongest in the direction of the center of our galaxy, in the constellation of Sagittarius. 
So, in April 1933, Kalyansky presented his paper in which he stated his conclusion as to what his data showed. The title of his paper is Electrical Disturbances Apparently of Extraterrestrial Origin. It's brilliantly simply titled, and it captured the public's imagination immediately and welded together the science of astronomy the science of radio and electronic engineering, and they have been inseparable ever since. Also note his use of the word apparently. This illustrates his understanding of both the nature and practice of good science. Kalyansky sadly died on Valentine's Day in 1950. He was only 44 years old and suffered for many years from a chronic kidney disease. Yansky was first diagnosed with kidney problems during his time at university and towards the end of his life, despite special diets, he had high blood pressure and heart problems. In honor of Yansky, the unit used by radio astronomies for the strength of a signal called flux density is called the Yansky. Uh, there's a crater on the moon. It is also named after him. And there are many postdoctoral fellowship programs named after Karl Yansky. There are annual awards. The Yansky Prize is given in Yansky's honor. And in 20 2012, the NRAO announced that the Very Large Array, the VLA, the radio telescope in New Mexico, would be renamed the Karl Jansky Very Large Array in honor of his contribution to radio astronomy. Every scientific worker makes use of the results obtained by others who have gone before them and advice and help from his co-workers no doubt helped Jansky. We call it standing on the shoulders of giants. He had much help from the results of past research work and from other engineers at Bell Telephone Laboratories. This in no way detracts from the credit due to him for his world-shattering scientific discovery, but rather it extends credit to those who by advice and counsel contributed to the final brilliant result. He was also very lucky. Our Aurora hunters will be very interested in this. During the time of his research in the early 1930s, the sun was going through the minimum period in its 11-year sunspot cycle. So detecting signals from further afield was easier because if he had started five years later or earlier, the sun's radiation would have overwhelmed the mysterious hiss that he found in his data. Jansky is the father of radio astronomy, a giant. And next podcast, I'll tell you about someone who stood on Jansky's shoulders. Next week, it's Grot Riba, who started his own radio telescopes in 1937. And you might be interested, Brendan, to know he lived and died in Tasmania. I have been to the Grot Reba Museum, Nadezhda, and that's part of a dish complex run by the University of Tasmania, not far from the capital city of Hobart. Well... Thank you very much, Nadezhda. We'll look forward to next week, and I hope those thunderstorms into there don't interfere too much with your data. 
Thank you, Brendan. Goodbye for now. Desvidanya. And today, and hopefully on a regular basis, we'll be talking to Dr. Ian Musgrave from Adelaide, and he's a molecular pharmacologist and toxicologist who works at the University of Adelaide. Welcome, Ian. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. How are you? Very good. Thanks, Ian. Can you tell me a little bit about what's up in the night sky? We often go to your website, Astroblogger, because you regularly put up information for your viewers on Astroblog, what's up in the night sky. What's happening at the moment up there, Ian? It's going to be a very interesting week because Venus and Mercury are making a return to the evening sky. They've been absent for about a month because they've both been close to the sun. But this week they're making a return. Of course, unfortunately, they're very, very close to the horizon. If you are out tonight, for example, then you'll see Venus and Mercury very close together. But they're only about two finger widths, three finger widths above the horizon half an hour after the sun sets. So it's going to be very difficult to see. However, if you keep on watching, over the next few days, Mercury and Venus will separate, but both are heading towards Jupiter. So well, evening sky is going to be very beautiful because you'll have a lineup of Venus, Mercury, Jupiter uh, low in the western sky. And then if you head uh, look up towards the northern sky, you will see Mars and Saturn. So for the next month or so, we're going to have some really nice views as Mercury and Venus head up towards Jupiter, and then the Moon will join them. We'll talk about specific interactions in another episode, I think. But you'll see Mercury and Venus moving up towards Jupiter, making the western twilight sky looking very, very nice. Tonight, of Venus and Mercury, really hard to see, but over the coming nights, it'll be much, much better. Of course, one of the beautiful sights has been the opposition of Mars. Now, Mars is well past opposition but it's still beautiful and bright. If you look northeast, those of you who are familiar with the constellations will see the curled question mark of Scorpio. Now, within that, you'll see the bright red star Antares in the, in the body of the scorpion. But if you look towards the head of the scorpion, you'll see another bright red object, which is Mars, heading back towards the scorpion as we speak. And below Antares is a, a yellowish object, which is Saturn. Now, these form, along with the elder Scorpio, a rather nice triangle. Over the coming week, you'll see Mars moves slowly towards Antares and Saturn and uh, in the uh, coming weeks and months that will look more and more spectacular. At the moment it just looks really nice. Very good Ian. Now do you just do naked eye astronomy or do you use binoculars or telescopes? I use all three. I, I really like an aided eye observation because you don't need to cart huge chunks of equipment around with you. I also have two main interests aside from unaided eye observation, um, planetary astronomy and cometary astronomy. For those of you who are interested in comets, there's, we've got a really nice comet in the sky at the moment, which is favours the Southern Hemisphere observers. This is, comet is C slash 2013 X1 Panstars. Don't you just love comet names these days? This week, it's not going to be very exciting because it's very close to the moon. What astronomers call a bright comet, which means it's brighter than magnitude 12. Most non-comet people uh, tend to get a little bit puzzled by by where we say, oh, look, there's a bright comet in the sky. They go, oh, look, they can't see anything and you need halfway decent equipment. But the comet Panstars at the moment is magnitude 7. It's in a really interesting and rich area of the sky. So, unfortunately, as I said, it's, it's, it's quite close to the moon. So, 
observing the comet at the moment is not going to be very exciting. But if you wait in a little while as the uh, moon goes away, it will be a very pleasant telescopic object. It's fading. It will probably be about uh, magnitude 7.5 to 8 by the time the moon gets out of the way. But for those of us with uh, decent telescopes, it will be quite a, a nice little comet at the moment. Very good, Ian. And once the moon has passed its current phase and we're moving into darker skies, yep. when people point their telescope in that direction and all of those globular clusters and galaxies are nearby, how would they tell the difference between one fuzzy ball and, a, and the fuzzy ball that is comet pan stars? Well, at the moment, Comet Pan-STARRS has moved out of the high concentration of globular clusters and open clusters it was in. So at the moment, for the next week or so, it will be nowhere near anything that will be mistaken for a, uh, a comet. It's got a, a number of guide stars, which are quite useful. It's currently between Lupus and Centaurus, and... From suburban skies, it will just be a fuzzy dot. From dark skies, you should be able to see a faint tail. Just, just I'm talking unaided eye viewing at the moment. And if you watch from night to night, you'll see it change position. So that's a good way to tell tell the difference between uh, random fuzzy blobs, and, which happen to be mere uh, beautiful clusters and galaxies. And comets is that comets move, and it will move quite substantially from night to night. Excellent. Thank you, Ian. Now, is this a Southern Hemisphere comet or will people in the Northern Hemisphere be able to view pan stars? For people in the Northern Hemisphere, it's going to be very difficult unless they're relatively close to the equator because, as I said, it's currently between Lupus and Centaurus and those will be very low on the horizon at the moment. And to help people who would like to have a prediction about the weather, do you use Skippy Sky? I use Skippy Sky for weather prediction. I found that find it a very useful adjunct to my viewing. Although for the last couple of days I haven't needed it because you just walk outside, it's been socked in until the last two nights. I've had very poor luck with comet pan stars. Almost every night that I've gone out to, to look, it's been either clouded out or the moon's been right close to it, which has been a real pain. I was up in the Grampians a, a couple of nights ago and I got my telescope, my little travelling telescope out. The skies were absolutely beautiful and clear. What sort of telescope do you use for your astronomy, Ian? I have three working telescopes at the moment. I have a 40mm refractor, which I uh, use as my bushwalking telescope because it's quite portable. I have a 4-inch Newtonian reflector, which I use for getting things out and moving things around rapidly because I, it, it doesn't weigh a tonne. And then I have Don, the 8-inch uh, Newtonian, which I use for serious observing because it weighs a tonne and getting it out is such a pain. <laughs> So I use the different telescopes for different things. For example, if I want to take photographs using my DSLR, I tend to use the 4-inch because the focal length of the 8-inch isn't suited with my adapter for the DSLR. If I want to do CCD imaging, I've converted an old webcam into a planetary CCD imager. I tend to use Don for that because Don has uh, tracking and the 4-inch uh, doesn't have tracking. But also the 4-inch is very good for moving things around during the uh, last transit of Venus, which, uh, which you may remember. It was the transit was occurring as the sun was uh, setting, and I had to keep on moving the telescope into little patches where there was a gap in the trees to see 
see the to see the transit. So I used the four inch for that because I could just pick it up and move it. Whereas picking it up and moving it for a short period of time is, is not on. So horses for courses. Okay, very good, and thank you very much for that. And we will direct our listeners to just go and Google Astroblog or Astroblogger, and you'll find Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblog, where he gives a weekly roundup of what's up in the night sky this week. So make sure you do that. Thank you very much, Ian. News Roundup. Meerkat. Even operating at a quarter of its eventual capacity, South Africa's Meerkat radio telescope showed off its phenomenal power on Saturday, revealing 1,300 galaxies in a tiny corner of the universe where only 70 were known before. Each dish is about 14 metres in diameter, highly steerable and cleverly designed so that the struts don't interfere with the incoming rays. Meerkat's full contingent of 64 receptors will be integrated next year into a multinational square kilometre array, SCAR, which is set to become the world's most powerful radio telescope. When fully up and running in the 2020s, the SCAR will comprise 3,000 dishes spread over an area of a square kilometre. It will explore novas, supernovas, quasars, black holes, dark energy and traces of the universe's origins left behind in the cosmic microwave background radiation some 14 billion years ago. Meerkat is built in a remote area of South Africa that offers prime conditions for radio astronomy. It will serve as one of the two main clusters of SCAR. The other will be in Australia. Dark Matter Astrophysicists have known about dark matter for 40 years. We can see the way it affects the movement of the stars in our galaxy and other galaxies, and dark matter acts as an invisible force. So once again we're seeing, just like in previous episodes of Astrophys, that astrophysics can often involve digging holes. In this case, astrophysicists are going a kilometre into the Earth in an operating gold mine in Stahl, about 200 kilometres northwest of Melbourne as the crow flies, as we say in Australia, near the famous dark skies of the Grampians, referred to earlier by Ian Musgrave. They are driving trucks down this huge tunnel and constructing the Southern Hemisphere's first dark matter detector. Dark matter accounts for 84% of the universe, but we don't know that much about it. Their $3.5 million subterranean laboratory is attracting international teams of astrophysicists, astronomers, cosmologists and engineers to work on this exciting project. Working underground is always dangerous, but you don't get access to funding resources without some serious risk assessment and mitigation strategies. It takes 20 minutes to drive a four-wheel drive down into the site where the lab, where the dark matter detector is being constructed, sometimes giving way to the gold mining trucks travelling in the opposite direction. Dark matter is one of the greatest mysteries of our time, and this amazing project will place the tiny, tiny town of Stall on the map of our quest for new knowledge about our staggeringly beautiful universe. Snippets. To find out about a very strange galaxy that is inside out, just Google Frankenstein Galaxy. To see a very cool video of the latest launch of SpaceX to the International Space Station, go to tinyworld.com astrophys dragon, all lowercase, all one word. This presentation is very slick and explains the science beautifully.
to see an amazing colour CGI map of the South Pole of Jupiter, go to tinyearl.com forward slash Jupiter Pole, all lowercase, all one word. The map was constructed from images taken by Cassini in December 2000 as a spacecraft neared Jupiter during a flyby on its way to Saturn. Finally, we've got the exciting news that we will have Dr. Sarah Madison on the show next week. Professor Madison is the Dean of the School of Science and Professor of Astrophysics at Swinburne University and is doing some amazing research on how planets form from dust. See you soon. Good night, all. Radio waves, radio waves.